0: Of the King on it. We're at the end of Matthew chapter 20 as we speed through the Gospel of Matthew. This is the sixty ninth sermon. And it was very interesting, we talked about a case of blindness and seeing in the adult Bible class this morning, and providentially we're going to talk about the same thing in the sermon today. And don't really plan these things out, and do the schedules months and months in advance without regard uh, for each other really, and sometimes God just works it out that way. So I thought that was pretty awesome. So if you turn to end of Matthew 20, a short passage today, verses 29 through 34. Please listen carefully, as this is the word of the Lord. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. And we ask this morning simply that you would help us to see Jesus. Help us to consider what it means to follow Jesus. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We did something a little different this morning. During the adult, the two adult Sunday school classes, if you were there early, you got a survey. A one-sentence survey that simply said, if Jesus came to you personally right now and asked, what do you want me to do for you? So without giving it a lot of thought or taking time to pray, what's your immediate response to that question? Now think about that answer, you don't have to call it out or anything like that. In one sentence, how would you respond right now? Jesus shows up and says, what do you want uh, me to do for you? And so we did that quick survey, and we got 26 responses from the two classes, uh, which means about half of the classes came in after we finished the survey. But it's very interesting, I have the results. Right here, the. Uh, I had no idea what we what to expect. Uh, we talked about it at our uh, staff meeting this week, and uh, uh, just no idea how people would respond to that question. But we asked it, and we got the response. And uh, Tom, because he's used to dealing with thousands and millions of dollars, was able to tabulate this like that, no problem, and. Uh, well, maybe not millions yet, but that's coming. Anyway, we had 26 responses. And half the responses, I'm going to say, well, they're, they're all spiritually related, but half of them are directly related to, I'm putting in the broad category of sanctification. Although we got two that said they wanted salvation. And then half of the responses were much more personal, Uh, responses such as uh, a work-related issue, or bring back loved ones, or life direction, protection, joy and happiness, parenting. Someone asked for a baby, someone asked for everything, and someone asked for nothing. And I think it's very interesting. We actually have, I didn't add all these up. Fourteen different responses of the 26. Jesus shows up and says, what do you want me to do for you? Fourteen different responses from nothing to everything, literally. Literally. A lot of people wanted more faith and less doubt. A number had uh, holiness, sanctification, obedience-related issues. But a lot had some life-dominant issue, whether it was work or family or parenting, um, some issue in their life that looms very large right now. Jesus, what do you want me? to do for you. I need you to answer this, to deal with this, to solve this. About half of the people who responded landed in that category. So I think it's very interesting because I don't think these two categories of sort of uh, spiritual sanctification and personal uh, family related are necessarily opposed to each other. In fact, if I could have put down two things and not just one, I think most people would have given us one of each. You know, one thing that's more, uh, you know, sanctification, growing in holiness, loving the Lord, and one thing of this is what's going on in my life. You know, I got a bad boss, preacher talks too much, you know, whatever, you know, that dominant issue is in your life. I surely hope it's not that the preacher talks too much, because then you've got a pretty good life. Um, but this is, to some degree, what we see happening in our text today. We're going to see this question get asked, and we're going to see this immediate personal response, but behind the scenes we're going to see a spiritual growing and holiness and sanctification response. So we're going to get both responses just like we got this morning in our quick little survey. The the setting for this passage is very remarkable if you think about it. It seems at first glance it's a, a fairly simple situation. Jesus is walking along, there's some blind men. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And he heals them and goes on his way. Pretty easy. But if you put it in the context of everything going on in Matthew uh, now, right before this passage, we had the story of the rich young ruler who didn't get it. Then we see Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection to the disciples for the third time. And in the parallel passage in Luke, we read in Luke 18, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. They don't get it. And we have the story of James and John asking to sit at Jesus' side, one on his right, one on his left, when they're all in glory, and they obviously don't get it. This passage is immediately followed by the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, which we'll look at next week on Palm Sunday. Just kind of amazing how that fell out like that, you know. But we're going to see the crowds hail Jesus seven short days before they cry out for his crucifixion. It's clear they're not getting it. And then he cleans, uh, cleanses the temple so that it will be a house of prayer. And because of that, the priests and the scribes seek to destroy him. They clearly aren't getting it. And this story, right in the middle of all those events of Christ healing the blind man, stands in dramatic contrast to the incomprehension of the disciples, the priests, the scribes, the rich young ruler, and the crowds of people. Their spiritual blindness is rebuked by the sight of the blind beggars. And the story reveals the beginning of the blind man's faith, and it's a treasure for all who would see. Two blind men, despite their poverty and brokenness and sorrow, receive the greatest riches and wholeness and joy because they put their faith in Christ and follow him. And that's the context for our passage today. Some folks can see everything happening right before their eyes, but they're spiritually blind, so they don't get it. Other men who can't see anything get it. And so their eyes are opened, both physically and spiritually. So let's dive in, look at this wonderful text. It's short and to the point, and we start by seeing that the king is leaving. Starting at verse twenty nine. The king is leaving. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So Jesus approached to Jericho, This is sort of he's come in and gone through and is going out. So some versions say he's going in, some say he's going through, some say he's going out. It's all one trip. And he's accompanied by a large crowd of his disciples and numerous pilgrims making their way up to Jerusalem for Passover. And it's customary for distinguished rabbis to travel with an entourage and to sort of teach as they walk. So Jesus passing through is not an unusual Uh, event. And he's going through Jericho and it's sort of compounding the crowding because the city is actually full of Levitical priests who are waiting their turn to make this day's journey up to Jerusalem to the temple to serve. And virtually everyone has heard of Jesus at this point and so they all want to see him. But there are some men who want to see Jesus more than the rest. The name of one of those men, according to Mark, is Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus and his friend are both blind. They're both beggars. The day has probably begun like any other day. Waking up, they shake the straw from their shabby torn garments. They stretch, they get to their feet, and begin tapping their way along the familiar turns leading to the main gate of Jericho. And perhaps they're able to beg a crust of bread or two at some familiar stops along the way. And arriving uh, at the gate, they take their regular places with the other beggars where they kind of draw their greasy cloaks tightly around them because even though it's spring, the sun hasn't yet dispelled the morning chill, sort of like this morning. And like the litter that collects in the gutter, there they sit, day in, day out, crumpled up men on the side of the road. And their friends are the other discards uh, that life in its hurry has just left behind. They're used up, thrown away people. And they live in their own separate place, and they live in their own separate pain. And each has a story to tell, and it's a story that nobody wants to hear. And so they cry out for a touch, a kind word, just a little bit of conversation. They cry out but the world passes them by on the way to somewhere else. And feeling around in the dark, Bartimaeus accosts this passerby with searching hands. And you can just imagine he's there. Alms, alms for the poor. Take pity on a poor blind man. And that's how he gropes for his daily bread. His friend is doing the same. A mumbled prayer, a coin from a reluctant benefactor, probably a sharp point of theology from the religious perhaps more than once just to shove to the side of the road. And as they sit there, like so many days before, they listen to the city come alive. It comes to life in the morning. And at first there's a donkey loaded with melons for the market. Several women are chatting as they bring pitchers towards the well. They can hear the clomp of the camel's hooves and soon Jericho is flourishing with the sounds of life and the blind men sort of fall into the rhythmic chanting of the beggar's cry. This is what life is like for Bartimaeus and his blind friend. For them, the road past the city gate is a dark stream where thousands of voices rush by. They hear trickles of conversation coming from down the street, and as the people get closer, they hush, they quicken their pace, they suddenly scoot past them and they're gone. But the blind men tense and lift their heads because the blind, sensitive ears hear the hubbub of this great crowd approaching. First come the young boys running ahead with shrill cries. Then uh, more people are hurrying past the gate, talking excitedly. The blind men, uh, brushed by the robe of somebody uh, walking by, reach out. You can imagine they just reach out and reaching for fabric, trying to grab somebody, ask, what's going on? What's happening? The passerby, pulling away, Luke tells us said they told them, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And they know that name. They've heard of this, this man, Jesus. Some say he's the one the prophet spoke about in Isaiah 42. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. If these guys knew any passages, they would know this passage. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, those who sit in darkness. At the beginning of Luke, Jesus quoted from Isaiah when he announced his ministry in Luke 4. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's already told the disciples of John the Baptist. They had come to him at one point and said, are you the one or should we wait for another? And Jesus told them, Matthew 11, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The Bible has a lot to say about the blind. So the word is out about him and these healing miracles. The blind men had likely heard accounts from those who have heard Jesus, or uh, perhaps they had seen Jesus, perhaps they even experienced his power firsthand. And messianic speculation is running high among the Jews in the first century. And perhaps uh, these blind men had heard that sometimes Jesus was called the son of David, that he had the right bloodline, that he's from the tribe of Judah. And so with amazing sight, the blind men come to the conclusion that Jesus must be the Messiah. And their hearts begin to pound. I imagine their hands are trembling, and the hot sun's overhead, the crowd's passing, they're getting jostled by the crowd. Jesus is soon going to be gone, passing them by. We have to do something. We must find him, they say to each other. We must talk to this Jesus. And so the blind cry out. Look at verses 30 and 31. The blind cry out. Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on a son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. What a difference between these two men and the crowd. These men are desperate. They're frantic. To the crowd, the scenes, I imagine, is more like entertainment. You know, a sight to see, something to talk about later on. They're crying pitifully, these men. They're begging at the top of their lungs. It's impossible for them to push through the crowd, but they make themselves heard. If we turn down the volume for a moment, reflect on what's implied in their conduct and in their words, we see why their cries get them everything, because they're full of blind sight. They had blind sight about their condition. These men knew they were blind and they're in perpetual darkness. Bartimaeus may have passed from the darkness of his mother's womb into the darkness of a sightless world. If so, he'd never seen a tree wave its branches in the spring. He's never seen the blue of a summer sky. He's never seen the face of his mother or anyone else who loved him. There's no sight in his darkened eyes. He knew there's no hope for him apart from a miracle. And there's only one thing worse than blindness and that is not knowing that you're blind. Multitudes are blind to their darkness, blind to their sin, blind to their destiny, blind to their hopelessness, spiritually out of touch. You know, human reasoning says that every time a person sins, that he should see more of his sin. But the opposite is true. Every time a person sins, he makes himself more blind less capable of realizing what sin is, less likely of realizing that he's a sinner. For unforgiven sinners, light and darkness are the same. Their blindness makes it impossible to see. What grace is it to see reality? Even if what we see is unpleasant or grotesque. Because when we see what we are, when we cannot escape the truth, when we're surrounded by darkness and we know it, then we'll begin to ask for the light. The blind man's pitiful cry, Lord, have mercy on a son of David, comes from a profound understanding of themselves and their blindness and their situation, and it brings grace to their soul. Jesus loves to engage such reality. And second, we see these Blind men not only had blind sight about their condition, they had blind sight about Jesus. They voice penetrating insight as to who Jesus is as they keep repeating, much to everybody else's distress, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. That title, Son of David, is not geographical, it's theological. It's a blatant messianic declaration. It's in fact how Jesus was first introduced to us all the way back at the beginning of the Gospel just a few short weeks ago. In Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Now the miseries of Greek and Roman domination had so inflamed the Old Testament hope that an ultimate Son of David, a Messiah, is going to come and depose the Gentiles, kick them out, in the first century, this title, Son of David, is constantly used by the rabbis as a messianic designation. They held since the Messiah would come as the second David, he would simply be called David. So this title, Son of David... Points to Jesus as the royal Messiah in the line of David, and as such, he fulfills the promises God made to King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 about the eternal reign of David's line. He acts as the unique agent in bringing the rule of God to the earth, a rule that's characterized by salvation and blessing. And these blind men believe. Jesus is that guy. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. And they're shouting it. And if it was dangerous to do so within the hearing of the Romans, they didn't care. They're sure Jesus can heal them. The blind men have excellent sight. Someone once very bluntly asked Helen Keller, who was blind, isn't it terrible to be blind? (coughs) And she responded, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. So it was with Bartimaeus and his friend. Sometimes blindness has its benefits. They have a lot of time to think without visual distractions. We live in an age of visual distractions. And most of us don't near have enough time to think. They had time to develop the interior life and the contemplative spirit. And they had time to learn how to see with their heart. And they thought about Christ and they come to a very exalted, very biblical view of him. Lord, Son of David. They realize their own condition, their own need, their own darkness. But they also realize who Jesus is. And furthermore, we see their very Uh, persistent. They have this amazing, passionate persistence. Verse 31, the crowd rebukes them, telling them to be silent. I doubt it was quite that gracious. I'm sure they were getting kicked and people were saying, you know, shut up, you blind beggars, or some other horrible uh, things. I'm sure they were uh, just constantly getting uh, verbally abused. And they just stubbornly reject the crowd, the, the mob rule. It says, they cried out all the more, again and again, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The people are trying to get him to hush, you know. You're making a scene. They're ridiculed. Shut up, you beggars. No way are they shutting up. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Quiet, beggar. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Will someone please make them be quiet? Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They're beyond the control of the crowd. And understanding something of who Jesus is and their own personal condition, they keep saying this over and over and over again, just like a little kid. Mom, 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 mom. You can never answer. You can't get a word in edgewise. And only a little bit earlier in Matthew 18, Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Sure, that's what he was talking about. You know, these men are coming to Jesus like a small child who's aware of their helplessness and uh, defenselessness and their, their dependence. And they're basically, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Their sense of urgency reveals what should be in our souls. I think this is the meaning of Jesus' words in Luke 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Spiritual blessings are for those who go for it. In the Old Testament, the Lord instructed His people, Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In the New Testament, Jesus himself says back in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Spiritual blessings aren't going to the half-hearted, but to those who want them above everything else. They're helpless, and these blind men go for it. And God hears them. And so we see the king is calling, verse 32. The king is calling, Stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. His final stop is Jerusalem and the cross. It's just 17 miles away. But Jesus makes time for these poor blind beggars. Notice that whatever the crowd's calling out didn't stop him, but hearing this cry of faith did. And stopping, Jesus called them, and said, what do you want me to do for you? On the one hand, nothing could stop uh, Jesus from finishing his mission. No opposition, no pleading by loving, ignorant friends, no protesting Peter, but the humble cry of these needy blind men stopped him cold. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And for a brief moment in time, these blind beggars have the undivided attention of God. What a window into the heart of God. He's alive today doing in far more exalted fashion the things He did while here on earth. Now in heaven, He hears constant hosannas from the heavenly host and from the church, and yet He is instantly attentive to all of our cries. Even when a million beggars cry to Him at the same time, Are you hurting? Do you feel helpless? You understand that your cry is music to his ears. What a painting this would make. Face-to-face, Jesus with the most penetrating eyes ever and the sightless sockets of Bartimaeus and his friend, framed by this expression of ultimate expectation. That's the way to come to Jesus. And to make sure that we get it, Jesus says something first. He asks them, what do you want me to do for you? That's a rhetorical question if I've ever heard one. I mean, what does Jesus think they want? Sunglasses? You know better than that. Jesus just wants to hear them say it. Hear them say exactly what they want. Hear them say exactly how much they believe what Jesus can do. Can you imagine being in this position? I have to ask myself, what would I do if this happened to me, if I were the blind beggar, uh, stepping forward, asking for mercy? What would I do if a blind beggar stepped forward and asked me for mercy? I'd Probably pray for him. I'd ask God to give him grace in this obviously difficult situation. And if it were his will to relieve his suffering, I might discuss various social services with him and tell him how our church might help. But the one thing that I would not do, that I would never do, is casually ask him, what do you want me to do for you? Because what he wants, I can't do. But they didn't ask me, they asked Jesus, the one person who can do what they want. And one of the reasons we don't often draw near to Jesus, we don't often cry out to him like this in prayer, is we too easily forget what he's able to do. But Bartimaeus and his friend, they know what he can do. Lord, I want out of the dungeon, out of the darkness. I want out of the shackles of these blind eyes. I want out of this prison. I want to be free. I want to see. Lord, I want to get off the side of the road. I want to walk the streets of Jericho without running into the walls. I want to look in the shops. I want to find my own way to the synagogue. I want to see. Lord, I want to use my hands for... Something besides feeling my way in the dark. I want to make things. I want to fix my own meals. I want to read the Torah. I want to see. Lord, I want to look into the eyes of a friend. I want to wave at someone across the street. I want to smile at children and pat their heads and wish them well. I want to love. I want to laugh. I want to live. I want to see. Lord, let our eyes be open. Our Lord wanted the men to articulate their heart's desire so he could strengthen their faith. Very similar way that we asked you in that quick survey this morning. These blind men knew exactly what they wanted. When we know our needs and can tell them to Jesus, amazing grace flows forth. And in an instant, Jesus knows everything. Those words, Lord, let our eyes be open," means to these men. And so the king gives them grace and mercy. He heals the blind, and in turn, the blind follow him. Verse 34. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Imagine how it was for the blind men blind at the beginning of Christ's touch, seeing at the end of it. No surgery, no bandages, no adjustment, boom, sight. Sunshine floods their eyes. They see a blue sky. They see the clouds in full sail. They see birds flying over the rooftops. They see Jericho hung with palm trees, the hills of Moab in the distance. They see human beings for the first time. They see this gawking crowd, but the thing they see First is the face of Jesus. Of this, the writer Clarence McCartney, great old Presbyterian pastor from years ago, said, and for you and me too, that will be the greatest of all sights. When we awake from the dream men call life, when we put off the image of the earth, and break the bonds of time and mortality, when the scales of time and sense have fallen from our eyes and the garment of corruption has been put off, when this mortality has put on immortality and this corruption has put on incorruption and we awaken in the everlasting morning, that will be the sight that will stir us and hold us. It's quite a lot to see for a blind man. Christ has responded to the blind men's understanding of their own darkness and their penetrating assessment of him, of who he is and what he can do. And in the final analysis, this miracle is all of Christ. Jesus called the men, and when they responded, the Savior called forth their faith. Scholars say that Mark's gospel preserves Bartimaeus' name because he became a stalwart in the Jerusalem church. He followed Jesus, witnessed the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the horror of the crucifixion, the joy of the resurrection. Quite an eye fill for your first week of seeing. What are the disciples supposed to learn from this event? After all, isn't that who he's teaching? It's the disciples. See, this is the last miracle presented in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What we find here is a theme that comes across through all the miracle accounts, namely the great reversal that takes place through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is fond of saying that the last will be first and the first will be last, a teaching that occurs five times in the Gospels. And as always, it's the poor, the afflicted, the blind who see Jesus for what he was, who believed what was promised of him in the scriptures and revealed in his miracles. It wasn't the religious leaders, and it usually wasn't even the disciples, but those who were like little children, helplessly dependent. This is an incredible picture of the contrast that he has in mind, the great reversal empowered by the cross and the empty tomb. Those who trust in Christ, though lowly and weak and afflicted, end up blessed. But those who do not put their faith in Christ, however rich and powerful and exalted in the world, end up poor and sorry and rejected by God, if not in this world, then in the next. The miracles are far more than mere random acts of kindness on the part of Jesus. They show us a lot more than Jesus being a good guy. They're much more of an advertisement, an advanced viewing, so to speak, of the entire scope of his redeeming work. They direct us to him as the one with divine power who is willing and able to save sinners. They offer our minds and hearts a foretaste, a sneak preview of what it will be like when death is finally put away and Satan is disarmed, when sin and sickness are no more, and when God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people. And to that end, the various afflicted people in the miracle accounts represent the reign of sin and Satan, what that means for a fallen humanity. They're a portrait gallery of sin and all of its effects. Leprosy shows sin's corrupting power and condemning presence. The lame shows sin's debilitating uh, power. The dead proclaim the wages of sin. The demon-possessed show the destructive domination that's the result of our bondage to sin and Satan. But in all the miracles... There's one kind of illness. We don't encounter often, but it's central to the Bible's depiction of sin's effect on people, and that is blindness. And perhaps Matthew saved this for the last miracle, passing by other examples for the sake of emphasis. So important is this portrait for our understanding of what it means to be lost in sin. In the Bible, sight is synonymous with belief. Jesus' famous words to Nicodemus tell us that in John 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Receiving the gift of faith by the grace of God may be uh, best represented by the great hymn that most of you know, Amazing Grace, I was blind, but now I see. This is the difference between Christians and others not that Christians are spiritually superior, or more spiritually attuned, more spiritually will- willing, but by his grace, God has opened our once blind eyes. And therefore, we encounter other people who are oblivious to the things of God, utterly unconcerned with spiritual realities. And our response is not one of contempt, but of compassion for their sakes. And then our compassion should spur us on to greater zeal for the gospel which is the light God has given for the opening of eyes that are blind. When we come to Christ in faith, this great reversal is applied to us. We who are guilty receive the righteousness of him who bought us with his blood. We who have been rebels against God are adopted as his beloved children. We who have sinned are forgiven because Jesus paid our debt. We who are weak receive the power of Christ by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We who are dead in sin are made alive in Christ. We who are blind are made to see. What are we to learn from the blind sight, the miraculous spiritual vision of the blind men. First, we have to see our need, just like them. These men knew they were blind. Let our eyes be opened. Are you blind to your sin, to your need for Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Perhaps you're a Christian, but your sin has cauterized your eyes to what Christ is asking you. Whatever your situation, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart. Lord, let our eyes be open. And second, once you see your need, you need to see Jesus. You need to see Jesus. He is the son of David, that awesome, glorious sovereign whom all peoples and all nations will worship, whose kingdoms and dominions will never end. He is the deliverer who will fulfill everything that King David foreshadowed. He's the Savior, the Messiah, Christ, the King. You need to see Jesus. And once you see your need and you see Jesus, then you need to cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Seeing your need, seeing who Jesus is, you have to cry out in faith. Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. This story in Matthew 20 is not so much about the healing of a couple of blind men as it is about sinners in need of a Savior. Someone able to see the one who can forgive sins. People like us. What will you do? What will any of us do? That's what this passage is about, to see or not to see. How are you going to have it? When Jesus asks you, what do you want me to do for you, what will you say? You can stay where you are. You can sit in your familiar dark where all the edges are rounded off so you don't hurt yourself where you only need to concern yourself with what is already within your reach. After all, you don't want to make a spectacle of yourself crying out to this Jesus person. And who knows, probably won't work anyway. No sense getting your hopes up. No sense thinking of yourself as a person who can really see. Stay with what you know. Or you can cry out, spring up, ask for your heart's desire, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, and good riddance to the fear that keeps you in the dark. Are we willing to see or not? And if you're willing, are you willing to see everything that is, the good along with the awful, the beautiful along with the monstrous, in yourself, and everyone you meet, in the world around you, are you willing to get used to a new way of seeing and perhaps bruising your shins and learning your way around the obstacles, fighting through the newness of it all? Are you willing to bruise your heart, stumbling, into the mystery that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. If you're going your own way, and that doesn't look so appealing to you anymore, then try going another way, following Him. That way leads to Jerusalem, it's all uphill, through a garden, past a cross, through a narrow gate leading to an empty tomb, and at the end, you're standing face to face with Him. What do you want me to do for you. Are you willing to see or not? And all who would see said, Amen. Amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. Thank you that in this passage we see your son. Open our eyes that we might not be blind to our sin, but able to see Jesus. Help us see him as you want us to see him, as humble, as obedient, as glorious, as loved by you. And help us to know and believe the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let us see that. Amen. Amen. Before we have our offering song I have I'm not going to use the one in your insert the blessing comes to you from the gospel of John chapter 20 Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe so that you may see that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing By seeing, you may have life in his name. God bless you. I'll see you at lunch.